The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello and welcome to the Do Gooder podcast. Today's episode is the second in a series of three episodes on intercountry adoption. If you haven't listened to the first episode in this series with Lanelle Long, please do so before listening to this one. This topic is extremely complex and it ignites a lot of emotion on all sides. My guest today has an incredible story to share and it's my hope that sharing this with you, our listeners, will shine a light on a story that needs to be told. Sometimes the best of intentions can result in the most heartbreaking of outcomes. Jessica Davis and her husband, Adam, adopted a child from Uganda in 2015, only to realize that they'd participated in a system that unlawfully separated a child from her family. After a thorough investigation, Jessica and her husband made the unprecedented decision to reunite their adopted child back with her Ugandan family. Since then, she's become an outspoken advocate for intercountry adoption reform and feels a sense of responsibility to raise awareness about the many misconceptions and the dark underbelly that intercountry adoption often wields. Due to her findings, Jessica appealed to authorities for an investigation into the American Adoption Agency, European Adoption Consultants, that had facilitated her adoption. As a result of that investigation, they were debarred, and as of August 2019, one of their employees pled guilty to federal charges of visa fraud, wire fraud, and bribing Ugandan judges and other officials in order to facilitate illegal adoptions abroad. Due to the corruption brought to light through this case, the United States State Department demanded more oversight from the Council of Accreditation, eventually causing them to step down from their position of overseeing adoption agencies and bringing in intercountry adoption accreditation and maintenance entity. Since then, intercountry adoption regulations in America have tightened up, resulting in a large number of adoption agencies either losing their accreditation or choosing not to renew it. I'm very happy to have Jessica on the podcast today and grateful for sharing her story with us. So welcome to the Do Gooder podcast, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Jessica, what does doing good mean to you personally? I guess I would have to say when I think about doing good, it's wanting to make a positive impact on the world, a group of people, a person doing something maybe selfless. When I was maybe a few years back or younger, I might've said something like a list of things that made me feel good was doing good or what I perceived the person I was helping was feeling good to them or helping. But I think 
life experiences and mistakes have taught me that doing good requires way more than good intent. You have to ask questions like, who am I helping? How is this helping? What is my motivation for helping? And am I causing any harm? And so what do you think it is inside you that drives you to want to do good, to help others? For as long as I can remember, I feel like I've always been drawn to people that were maybe marginalized or outcasts or treated like they didn't fit in. I've always felt a desire to make that not be the case. So maybe that's, you know, something about that, the injustice of things seems to get me going or get me upset and involved. Yes. And so how do you think that evolved into you wanting to adopt internationally? How I view doing good now probably didn't have a great impact on that. But of course, I I wanted to do good things. I wanted to help people. And I would say what I had been exposed to up until that point in life definitely shaped my desire to adopt. So growing up, what I had encountered about adoption through church, social settings, school, it pretty much was always, you know, images of children in poverty, orphanages, pictures of orphanages filled with children, children with distended stomachs, coupled with words like adoption or sponsorship or volunteering. So in my mind, I think it was a natural thought process. And then when I was in college, I went to Central America for a short period of time and I taught English in a school for children that were living on the street. So it was my first time in that environment for myself. And I think that's where my mind went. I truly thought these children had no home, no families. And I thought, well, I could provide a home for one of these children. I could meet their needs. So that was where the idea of adoption started for me when I was on that trip and doing that and around those children. And it was always kind of something I carried with me from then on. So the child you adopted was named Namata or Mata for short. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Can you describe the process of adopting Mata? I think we contacted our adoption agency, the one we decided to go with in 2013. And we ended up bringing Namata to America in 2015. So two years of paperwork, background checks, fees, home inspections, home studies, redoing home studies when you moved again. I mean, it was, it was long, it was tiring, it was exhausting. But I think for Adam and I, we expected that part of it. We never thought adopting should be easy, like they're determining whether we were qualified or properly prepared to adopt a child. So that, that was definitely, we were prepared for that. I mean, that didn't make it necessarily much easier, but we were definitely not surprised by that. Um, I remember the day we got our referral file, we were writing in the car together. So it was through email and I opened it and I'm like reading it out loud to my husband. And we get to the part where there was a thumbprint with a mother's relinquishment of her child. And my husband said, wait, wait, what was that? And I reread it and he was like, 
the mother's alive. And I said, I think that's what this, you know, we were just kind of caught off guard because our idea of what an orphan was, was a child that did not have living family, um, had nowhere to go. We immediately called our adoption agency. We were still on the same car ride, like no time wasted, call the agency, ask some questions. And when we look back now, we really feel like we were given this sensationalized answer that made us ignore all of those questions and just press on. We were led to believe at that point that if we did not pursue the adoption, Namada would spend the rest of her childhood in an orphanage or even worse than that, in harm's way. So we just pressed on. Do you feel that your concerns were taken seriously in that time or was it just a glossing over and, as you said, a a focus on what would happen if you didn't proceed? They were definitely not considered. It was almost like, why are you asking us this? Uh, But the answer was so compelling. I don't think I've ever gone into details of that because we know now that they were lies and they're lies about someone I love, (laughs) you know, about Mata's mother and about Mata herself. And I don't want to perpetuate those lies anymore, but it was things that made me think if we walked away from this adoption, we're just leaving a child in an orphanage. And what good is that doing her? And I guess you're already quite heavily emotionally invested in the process, right? You've been going through it for a few years. Yes. I mean, I guess that was definitely, but the answer definitely made us feel less concerned because we thought, well, that's the answer. That's why this child, and we still assumed that almost all the other children would have been the opposite situation. But you know, what you've come to realize is this is the common theme with intercountry adoption. Yeah. So... Marta came to the US. Can you describe what that process was like of her arriving or did you go and pick her up? Yes, we went to Uganda. We spent a little over two months in Uganda with her. We took all of our children, but our youngest. I wish we would have taken our youngest. That was unnecessary. Our adoption agency really pushed us not to take any of our our biological children. And we just wanted our biological children to know Namada's world, her country. We wanted it to be a part of our lives, not something we just talked about. So we gave in on the youngest not going, but we took the rest of our children. And I'm so thankful for that. Why did they not want you to bring your children? They said it was not safe. And of course, I had not truly been there myself. They had. And what I knew from it was through reading and through talking to other people. But I really didn't have enough to say, I'm right, you're wrong, I'll do what I want. And I was not willing to give in on the older kids, but I did with Abby and I've regretted that to this day. It's something even Abby herself still asks when she gets to go and see Mata and go to Africa. And still, that was a traumatic time for her as well. But yeah, so we went over there. That process was insane. It's nothing like you're thinking it will be because we have these contingencies here in America that just aren't in place there. So we fly over and the very day we arrive, they take us to the orphanage and just, here's Namada and take her. I'm like, what? Like, you know, I was just surprised 
they were so nonchalant about her well-being. Not that we weren't safe, but it just seemed like there should be more parameters in place. She just went home with us that day. And it went much better than we anticipated. I had read up and I felt like I was prepared for a lot more difficult of a bonding experience, but Mata and I bonded pretty much instantly. She bonded so well with her adoptive siblings. It was a really good connection. And I think it was because we were there like in this family unit. So when we came to America, that's when her English skills started to improve. And I've always been like a person that asks a lot of questions. So I, I also parent very much that way as well. I want my kids to ask questions and I wanted Mata to always feel like she could ask anything, she could share anything. I try to be a very open parent. I would like for my kids to feel like they can come to me with anything. So I think that helped with Mata coming to us with things and sharing her life and feeling very open. She would come to us. We talked about Uganda pretty much daily in our home. And I think that was kind of how things started to slowly unravel because at first it started with just me realizing as she shared more and more how beautiful and how it seemed so normal, her family life in Uganda. And I started to worry what had we taken her from. But at the same time, I'm still believing the things that I had been told and trying to like balance that out. But then things got more confusing when we would find out about siblings that we didn't know existed or cousins or grandparents or aunts and uncles. And then like things like I went to school every day and I'm thinking like that was in the file. Like she never had gotten to go to school and there was just so much. And then there was one day that was very pivotal and we must've already been talking about something in Uganda, because I don't remember what that discussion was, but she kind of stopped the conversation and she said, mom, can I tell you something? That's, she had this way of saying things and her voice would like fluctuate. And I said, of course, what? And she said, my mom loved me and I don't think she would have given me away. And I sat there for a minute, not like a full minute, but I sat there and just stopped. And then I said, well, Namata, we need to find out what happened then, right? And she said, yes. And I said, well, I will do everything I can to find out. And that's where it started. I can't even imagine the pain of that realization for you and, and having to manage her confusion and her pain at the same time. We really tried to be positive always when we discussed these things with Namada and she wanted to be open with us. But man, when it was Adam and I, the anger, like mixed with like, like my husband, his personality is, I, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And I'm all emotion. So, you know, he was immediately wait, we need to find out what happened here. And I mean, of course I was completely supportive, but I was also a ball of emotion because I loved this child so deeply. And I, how will I know what I'm finding out? How will we find out? How do, you know, all of those things. How do we do this? Wow. 
you've talked about contacting the authorities. So at that point when you decided you need to do something and find out what happened, you've talked about contacting the authorities with the information you had and being told, well, you can just keep her if you want. Yeah, that was awful. (laughs) I remember them saying that. And when I think about it, I wonder if it was like they were just trying to convey the reality of the situation because it's an uncomfortable reality because it's not right that I get to decide that. If a child was unlawfully separated from her family, I get to decide what to do, not her family, not her. So I don't know if that was their way of just conveying the fact that I have all the power, but I distinctly felt it was almost as if there was some sort of ownership implied, like she was mine. I could do as I wished. And there was no part of that that I wanted. And I did say, I didn't purchase her at Walmart. She's a human being with a family and I need to know what happened. I cannot live with the thought of a mother being separated from her child. I'm a mom. How could I? How could anyone? And I wanted to ask you that what was the what was the one thing that made you determined to return Mata to Uganda? I don't know that it was necessarily one thing. I think it helped that adoption was not about growing our family. It was not about becoming this idealistic blended family. There was none of that. It truly was about meeting the needs of a child that did not have access to that. So the moment we realized that was not the situation, I think for both Adam and I, it was, we need to figure out what happened here. And if we separated a family, we need to make that right. It was just so shocking to think that this happens and then to compound that with realizing that this happens often. Yeah, and and the emotion of of connecting and bonding with a child in your home and in your family and and managing the your own emotions but also of your biological children and their emotions. It was a difficult time and it still sometimes is. I think our youngest has struggled the most in the sense of like emotion. And it, it, whenever we do get to chat with Mata and her family, that's Mata's first question and Abby's first question. They want to talk to each other. It's like all of us can wait. Those two want to reconnect. And you briefly said that this happens often. And I have read that there are obviously other adoptive parents who are in the same position that you were in and have not made the same decision that you did. Where do you think that comes from? That's so difficult for me to answer because I don't like answering on behalf of other people. And I try to be careful not to impose my experience on, you know, a blanket statement on all adoptive families because it's not. But I do think that in regard to especially families that used our agency, it would be naive to think that it was just our adoption. When you have, like you mentioned at the beginning, employees from our agency pleading guilty to bribing judges, visa fraud, wire fraud, you can't bury your head in the sand. You have a responsibility as an adoptive parent 
to make sure that your adoptive child knows the facts behind their adoption, knows if they have extended family, knows the truth, and you need to be their ally. You need to be their advocate. That's true love is standing by them because that's this is their reality. They're the adopted person. So if we can't be there for them while they navigate that, then what is the point of adoption? I mean, that's truly what it's for. Adoption doesn't fix anything. That's the way I feel anyways. I feel what it does is gives an adoptive parent the opportunity to make that lifelong commitment to advocate for that child, to stand by them and help them navigate that loss for the rest of their lives. And I imagine there must be a lot of fear around the decision to return. Fear of what if all is not as it seems, especially if you've been given false information to start with. Fear uh, around what kind of life are you sending that child back to? some guilt around, you know, any trauma or pain that has been caused to that child of that family and yourself and your own family. How have you managed that? I don't know that I managed it. (laughs) I just, yeah, I, I never looked at it in that way that what life am I sending her back to maybe because of how open we were with Namada about her life there. I mean, I remember saying, Namada, remember, like, you don't have electric, you don't have those things that we have here. And she would say, Mom, I lived that way my whole life. That doesn't scare me. It would be more of a a fear for myself. And a lot of times it was humorous, the way we would just deal with things. I mean, she would jokingly talk about how when I get home, my mom's not going to make me go to school like you do. And we would laugh and I'm like, okay, okay, Mata. she goes to school every day. It cracks me up that that was something that she would say. She was just like, I'm going to get home and I'm going to play every day, all day, you know, and roam free. That was another thing, you know, you just didn't do in America. I couldn't let her just go wander off. And that was a frustration for her, I'm sure. But like at home, she's given a lot more of those freedoms because she's the old, you know, the oldest daughter and it's the lifestyle there. And I'm just so thankful that she is not living her life away from her family and missing out on all of those things that were hers to begin with, that were stripped from her needlessly. And Adam and I both, I think, struggle the most with the fact that because of our application to adopt, we do believe that Mata was sought out and brought into the system. So the only period of her life where she was put in harm's way was when she was put into that orphanage. I watched the video of Mata being excited to return to Uganda. And as beautiful as the video is, I imagine it was completely gut-wrenching for you. That, That video still, sometimes when I watch it, it just immediately the emotion comes back because we were at that point where we had spoken privately to our biological children. They knew she was going to be reunited and we were all really sad. I mean, we were happy. We were happy that they were going to all be together. But so we had spoken to our children that we were going to try to make this concerted effort to be very positive for Mata because I didn't want to add to the layer layers of pain of like, now I have to feel sad for you guys because you're sad. You know, she was literally, it was pure joy. 
And so we tried to just be joyful with her. So when I made that video, I remember I was struggling with like the anger of the people that we felt had purposely brought her into the system and stripped her from her family. And I was also struggling, you know, with anger about my own accountabilities and the situation and my own ignorance. And that day was just an emotional mess. I mean, after Namada left, I stayed home with the biological children, which was very difficult because as a mom, I wanted that mom experience. I wanted to be with her till the moment she went into her mom's arms. And I wanted to see her mom. I wanted to have that time with her, but my husband was adamant. He was afraid because of what I had exposed to let me go alone. And one of us needed to stay home. And he was like, I'm not letting Namada out of my sight till she's in her mom's arms. It was kind of like that daddy protector, you know, he was adamant that I said, now, Adam, you know what this is like. You're like this white guy traveling internationally with a little brown child. Like, I don't know how this is going to play. There was a lot of fear involved because no one had done this. And there was literally no protocol for how to do it. So we didn't know if someone was going to stop us and say, you can't do this. You can't take her home. So there was a lot of those fears involved. They left. It was so emotional. (laughs) We were trying to like smile and be happy. And the second she walked out of the door, Abby lost it. Like inconsolable crying, like when they can't breathe. And she would not let me touch her. Like she wouldn't let me hug her. I was like sitting at my kitchen counter, like we had these bar stools and I was so mad. And I was like, someone has to pay for this. All this pain for what? What was all of this for? You know, it it was a tough time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we forget about the, the peripheral pain. So it's not just the adoptive parents or the biological parents and the, the child, but it's all of those people around that have connections and bonds to that child. Well, and that's, that was the thing that got us through was remembering the pain that Mata's mother and siblings probably were feeling. Our pain probably didn't even compare. So that was what we constantly went back to. And that's really what got us through. And it, that was the, the best part about all of this. They were all going to be together again. Yeah. And I've also seen the video of, of Mata seeing her mom. Oh, geez. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I was sobbing. <laughs> like scoops her up, takes her in and you can hear her, you know, saying her name over. And what's so funny is we have the same nickname. Like her name's Namada, but we both called her Mata. I just think that's amazing. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It was beautiful. Beautiful. So your discovery led to an investigation of EAC, the adoption agency which subsequently led them to be shut down. Uh, And the State Department found that they had exhibited a pattern of serious, willful, or grossly negligent failure to comply with the standards for international adoption, and that they'd failed safety procedures that prevent the solicitation of bribes, they'd fraudulently obtained birth parent consent. And upon closing, EAC had placed more than 2,000 children from overseas in homes in America since 1991. What 
do those findings of the State Department mean for those 2,000 children? Yeah, I don't always feel like it's my place to answer for other families, but it would be naive of us to believe that it's just our family. It's just Nomada's family that was affected. We've had one employee already and plead guilty to bribing judges, visa fraud, wire fraud, and you can't ignore that. As an adoptive parent, that I feel like is one of our greatest responsibilities. It's not just about bringing them into your family. It's also making sure that we have all the facts. I mean, especially when you add in the layer of you've used an agency that's now debarred, pleading guilty to all of these federal charges. You have to make sure the history behind what brought them into the system in the first place. And your relationship with your adoptive child will be better because of it. Because if you choose to ignore it, your adoptive child will grow up and they will look for these answers themselves. And when they find them and they see this, there will be enough online because of everything that's transpired that they could say, why? Why would you not have looked into this? And saying, well, we love you is not an answer. Love means going beyond your fear and doing what's best. And what's best is knowing the truth, knowing the facts, and then helping them navigate that because that's not easy either. So you've written quite a bit on this subject and I've read a lot of what you've written. There's something that stood out to me and I want to quote something you've said. Intercountry adoption should never be about doing a good deed in the world or becoming a mom or dad. Yes, those reasons are normal and usually are the basis for beginning the process. But at the point when one begins the process to adopt, we need to recognize that those feelings are all about the adoptive parents and not the child or children we are hoping to adopt. Adoption for them stems from a complete loss of everything and everyone familiar to them. Recognizing this is vital to a healthy adoption process. I'm convinced we as a society have made adoption all about becoming a family. When we do this, we tend to see adoption in this happy light that doesn't allow the adoptee the freedom to express what adoption actually is for them, loss. Out of that, I want to pick up on a specific line. And that was, we need to recognize that those feelings are all about the adoptive parents and not the child or children we are hoping to adopt. And this takes us into this question of whether adoption is in fact in the best interests of the child. From a child protection perspective, best interest should be the foremost in any decision-making about vulnerable children. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is something I've thought a lot about. I don't think I would ever say adoption is never necessary because I've met adult adoptees that have told me they did feel it was the last and best option for their situation. Does that mean that their adoption was perfect and rainbows and butterflies? Definitely not. I just don't like to diminish any lived experience. That's who we need to be listening to. So when we're in the process to adopt, that's what I hear the most of. Like, we're just going to be this family. I want to adopt. I want to do something good. I myself have said these things. And I think that those things in of themselves aren't necessarily bad things. But if we choose not to recognize the fact that they blind us, 
from seeing what adoption is for the adopted person, that's where the problem lies. Just in that setting alone, if we go into adoption thinking we're going to just be this happy family and everything's going to be great, you're setting that adoption up for failure because you're putting unrealistic expectations on that adoptee. And, and that's just not fair. They cannot really be free to express the pain of it if that's what they feel they have to be around adoption. And that was one thing I feel pretty confident about that we were advocates for Mata to feel and be however she wanted. I mean, there were layers to it though that I don't know that you can ever be and say as you want as an adopted person. There's probably just, no matter how much freedom I wanted to give to her, she probably felt constrained just by the nature of adoption, feeling like you have to fit in, feeling like you have to be happy. I never wanted her to feel happy. I don't think any of us did. We wanted her to just be whatever she needed to be in the moment. Like I said, I'm an emotional person myself, so I am fine with emotion. It's just, I feel like we need to get that part of the adoption thing better understood so that we can be better adoptive parents, so the adoptee can live a better existence within an adoption. Because that's what it's all about, the adoptee, and that's what it should be. So we need to constantly be rethinking our motives as the adoptive parents, and are we giving them the freedom they need to express how they're feeling? You've also talked about privilege, and you've said, my race, country of origin, wealth, my access to things, my religion, none of these privileges entitles me to the children of the poor, voiceless and underprivileged. How does privilege play a part in perpetuating the dominant narrative about intercountry adoption? I would say it plays a very big part. <laughs> that statement was very important to me. When I was writing the op-ed, it was one of the things that like the editor would go back and say, hey, can we change that? And I was just like, no part of that one statement. Just because every single one of those things has been said to me since we reunited and during the process of reunification as to reasons why we shouldn't be doing it. And it just never ceased to amaze me that anyone would think any of those things were reasons to not put a family back together that was unlawfully separated. It's just, it's still such a shocking thing to me. But when you look at how privilege affects us as a person, as a people in society, this is how it happens. This is how it affects our ability to see things from someone else's perspective. And it blinds us from the reality sometimes. We're just seeing it through our own lens and our own life experiences. And when we do that, when we don't take the time to listen to those with lived experiences that can teach us otherwise and teach us to do better, then we fail. Then families like the Mata's will continue to be needlessly separated. You touched on that you felt that Namada was specifically sought out because there was a request for an adoption that was approved, right? Just bringing that into this discussion around privilege and, and wealth and, and the ability to pay the costs of adopting. And I, I'm not sure what the total cost is. I know it's significant, but, you know, how the exchange of money for children essentially drives the commodification of them in the context of adoption. 
and how that leads to all of those things that EAC did, the bribery of judges, you know, the falsification of records. What are your thoughts on the cost of adoption and, and the ethics around that? When we were going into the process, I looked at it differently than what I look at it like from the perspective of what I've learned. I mean, we truly thought the things we were paying for were like fees and like this person's doing their job. I have to pay them to do the home study. I have to pay them. You know, we had some extraordinary fees because we took our whole family minus one child to Uganda. That was costly. We chose not to fundraise. We felt like this was not something we should ask other people to pay for. (laughs) We felt like this was, that was a weird place that we weren't willing to go with the adoption. Is that something that happens quite often, fundraising? I think so. I don't think I've met anyone else that didn't fund, that didn't, that we were kind of, I I don't think I've met a family that didn't. I mean, at one point, our church we were in had, right before we left, had surprised us with uh, some money they gave to us. So it was more for like costs, but like a flying our family over and stuff. But still, even that, we were so grateful for it because obviously we were using our life savings to do this. You know, when I, Think of everything now. You're so caught up in the process. You're not maybe asking all the questions you should be. But when you think, I know now that four out of five children in orphanages have families, loving families. And then the number one reason that puts them in an orphanage is money. And then we threw all of this money. Of course, like when you're in that place, you don't feel like that's what you're doing. But at some point you have to acknowledge that is what you did and you have to accept responsibility and then work to change it. If we just want to say, oh, it wasn't my fault and blame all the other people that I definitely can blame, we still don't move ahead. We all have to understand our role in the problems and do our part to resolve them, to change them. So how do you think we change this privilege narrative around adoption? Well, first, accepting that we have privileges. That would be a good starting point. Deconstructing our misconceptions and the problems that come about because of them. Until we're ready to do those things, I just feel like this system and this problem within the system of intercountry adoption will just continue to happen. If we aren't willing to have the humility to admit our part in the problem, then the problem will persist. So you've attempted to do something about this you've uncovered an issue and you've started an organization is it Kugata yeah so Kugata exists to bring families together that have been separated through intercountry adoption can you tell us more about how this works yeah so basically after we reunited I just couldn't go on with my life with it was like it was before it was like I was left with this realization that there were other families longing to see their child again and adoptive families learning things weren't as they they seemed. So I'm like, how can I help? You know, there's a lot of fear, like you mentioned before in this process, fear of losing someone you love, participating in something you didn't realize you participated in and all of those things impact the situation. So I was thinking, how can we help? I really wanted it to be all about the adoptee. So how can I help this adopted person or these adopted people gain access 
to the information behind their adoptions and maybe even have a relationship with extended family and adoptive parents not be afraid of this. So that's really where it stemmed from. And that's our hope. The the families on our program have been amazing, very open. It's not an easy process to look into these things, find out things that maybe you didn't know were the realities involved. But as long as we're all trying and the goal is for the adoptees' well-being being put first, I think that we're moving in the right direction. I always have things to learn, and I'm sure there's things I will continue to make mistakes with and hopefully grow from through this. It's amazing that you've taken what is a very traumatic and, and difficult experience and been able to turn it into something positive to help other families. Looping right back to the first question, how do you think your idea of what it means to do good has evolved through this experience? I think I just learned that it's something that will always need to be reevaluated. Um, learning to ask more questions before quote unquote doing your good, <laughs> realizing that my privileges and my life experiences will always limit my ability to see things from certain perspectives. Probably lastly, respecting and listening to the voices that have lived experiences. Who is or has been someone that has been a really strong influence or a positive influence on you in living a good life or doing good in your life? I don't think I have like like this one person that I would always be like, oh, that's my motivation. I feel like any time I see or hear or watch a documentary about someone doing something great or changing my skewed lens or my perspective on something and really shaking things up for me, I'm always in awe of that and appreciate that. Um, If I did pick one person, it would definitely be my husband. He has always supported me. He has always giving me this motivation and this empowerment to be who I am amidst, uh, he's a pastor. uh, And I always say I'm like the worst pastor's wife because I'm always questioning the thing. I'm like, I don't know if I should even be saying this, but I'm questioning it. And he just loves those things about me. And he's always made me feel like those are good things and it's okay to question things. And he's extremely humble, which has taught me in many ways, the beauty of humility. He never has cared about being right, which is so annoying in a marriage because sometimes I just want to fight or something. And he's like always fine with being wrong. He just wants, he's just such a laid back person, but he has a very strong moral compass. So doing right is important to him, not breaking rules, not breaking laws. Those are things that matter to him. And so I would say, Adam, probably would be the person I admire the most and have learned a lot from. Beautiful. So this is a question that I ask all of our guests. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when thinking about it, we're imagining something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking as a society. I think we tend to all want to be heard so often that we forget to listen. And like, there's just something so beautiful that can happen when we listen and we learn something and something changes for the better. So I I guess, I hope that's a 
social change that I think needs to happen. No, that's perfect. It's perfect. What would you say to your 21 year old self knowing what you know now? I hate to say that again, but it's like, listen to those around you. Like, it's just such an important thing. And it has brought me so much joy in my life. When you're younger, you feel like when you're corrected, this like angst about it. But I I feel like the more I learn and change and grow, I appreciate it. And it's like, I'm thankful to move past that person that thought that way or maybe had that wrong. I'm thankful for anything that propels me to be a better person, to do better than what I, maybe the mistakes you've made in the past. So maybe that, just to always be listening and open to a new way of thinking. Yeah, and it's an incredible quality to be able to make mistakes, learn from them and adapt. So your answer to this next question might be very similar to the last two. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would your message be? Putting other people before ourselves, I think goes a long way. I mean, obviously self-care is important and taking care of ourselves, but I think sometimes we get so caught up in like not making mistakes, not being wrong, being everything everyone needs us to be that we lose sight of like the beauty that is around us and from learning from other people and making a more positive impact on the world because of that, being selfless. Perfect. Perfect. So can you think of a person that you look at and think, wow, they're really doing a lot of good in the world right now? There's a lot of people doing a lot of good in the world right now. Probably too many. If I, if I listed some, I'd feel guilty for the ones I left out. There are so many people doing really good things in the world. So I think if we're looking for who's doing good in the world, it's whatever you're feeling is maybe compromised in the world or lacking or needs some social justice in the world, research it. Find out who's working in those fields. Find out what they're doing and ask those same questions, you know, that determine what is doing good and what is not. Talk about these things and don't just be okay with not knowing and not doing anything. Life gets so busy. I think it's easy for us all to kind of get in our day-to-day busy lives. But there's so much going on in the world that we can all make an impact. And if we're all doing a little bit, I feel like the world could be a much better place. Absolutely. So Jessica, where is your favorite place on earth? Where's your favorite place to be? At home with my family, 100%. That's in the States? Yeah. I mean, I don't care where that would be actually. Like we could be, we truly love to travel together. We can't afford it always, but I guess I say at home with my family because I'm a homebody and I'd love to be in my actual house with my kids and my husband, but that could be anywhere in the world. If we're together, I am just the happiest person. We are just, it's the best thing. Beautiful. And finally, What books are you reading or podcasts are you listening to right now? Oh my gosh, reading? Like I have four kids. (laughs) (laughs) I usually read a lot of blogs and a lot of the people that are in the same fields doing that kind of work. I mean, seriously, I feel like most of my days are taken up by my children and then my work. I literally, it's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. I, I can empathize. Well, 
Thank you so, so much for taking the time out and for having Do Gooder as your very first podcast. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thanks for having me on. I, um, I'm really thankful for this. Yeah, look, it's been so wonderful and I'm really grateful for you to share this story with us. So I think it's really important that we begin to shine a light on things that don't always get enough attention. So yeah, once again, thank you so much. And, yes, I um, hope it helps. I hope it sheds some light and, and brings a, a sense of relief. Like there's, not a, there, there's not really much to fear in finding truth. I mean, it's not always easy, but there's always a way to attend to those truths. And there's always people that are willing to support or be there for you or help you through those times, which are difficult. Yes. Yeah. And you're very brave for doing what you've done. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that, but (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.